We obviously jumped into Judges last week when everyone is right is the title of the whole series that closes out the book of Judges, a statement that's made. It describes, I think, uh, sadly, perfectly what Judges is all about. It describes our culture today. Uh, when everyone is right, uh, we have put ourselves in God's place. And, and this morning we're on what I can t- call Beginnings Part 2. I lost my creativity there. First one was Beginnings Part 1, and now it's Beginnings Part 2. It's Judges 2, uh, 6 through chapter 3, verse 6. And as I mentioned, and I'll say again, there's two introductions to Judges. Last week we did one, and we'll start uh, and, and finish the second one this morning. But I put down, kind of thinking through how to introduce it, I, I put down and asked a question, have you ever started a project off perfectly, but then something goes wrong, and the end result is not desirable? And I was thinking of myself, I uh, do little shop projects, and I even put a shop in parentheses just so I knew how ridiculous that sounds, uh, me being in the shop. But I've had some projects begin what I can can say in a perfect way. Uh, I had actually thought through what was needed. I thought through each step along the way, every component that would need to be prepared. But at some point along the way, I make a decision and I put here, I take a shortcut and it waylays the whole process. And I have found that when I have this perfectly laid out project with all the potential in the world, it's going to finish like I want it to, I cut a corner, I make a change, I make a deviation, and sure enough, it does not turn out right. And that's the weight of judges. Last week, we talked about it, and the history of Israel during this time is exactly that. And I want us to to not lose sight of that as we walk through judges. As we walk into this book, and, and most commentators, it's the distressing time of the judges, it's the dark day of Israel, and it is all of that. But what we can miss is that it was the great potential for the nation of Israel. Everything is in place. They are at the cusp of of what God has planned for. We talked about it for over 700 years since the promise of Abraham all the way to entering the land. They are right at the cusp of what is designed for them. They're at the cusp of the best government this world could ever have, and that's direct rule by God. They're at the cusp of of being the light to all the nations, being their own nation and shining out. They're the cusp of fulfilling everything that God has told them they would do. But their decisions, their sin, waylays the whole process. As I mentioned, we have two introductions. Last week was the historical introduction. And by that, I mean, it's the history. What is to to happen? What action is going to take place as we move from slave nation through the wilderness, through the punishment? Don't lose sight of that. We have just finished 40 years of punishment for sinning against God, not trusting in God, not believing God, not taking God at his word. So keep that in your mind. That weight is there. And they have now come into the promised land. And as we talked last week, they needed to occupy the land. And what we saw in the introduction was they initially had some success. And then we watched them fall into failure. Judges chapter 2, verse 6, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, is now what many people call the literary introduction. And that's just to give two different titles. One is the action that was supposed to take place, the historical movement of the nation. And by literary introduction, we are diving into the spiritual life of Israel as they walk into this land. And what we're going to see is the cycle of sin 
that is going to unfold in Israel during this time. It is both an introduction and a summary of what happens. It is the sin that cripples their potential. And as I mentioned before, it all unfolds with the great and godly leader, Joshua, leaving the scene. And then what we see is Israel leaving God and what he's commanded them to do. And I put as a question, how in the world does that take place? How do you have Joshua and his commitment to God, his trust in God, his, his confidence to do what God has commanded, and then you have his generation move off the scene? How in the world do we move from a leader and a nation doing what God wants them to do and having victories they never should have had to a nation that leaves God? Well, it begins with willful ignorance. If you look at Joshua chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, and, and as we work through uh, books of the Bible, uh, obviously if I'm preaching through Titus, there's less verses we're walking through, but we make a point to try to walk through every verse that's there. So when we walk through judges and we walk through narratives, there's oftentimes more reading. I think it's important. I was teaching the kids this morning uh, in Heather's Sunday school class, and we read Scripture. We wanted them to read Scripture because they need, and we all need, to, to get used to learning from what God has said directly. Joshua 2, 6 through 10 says this, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. That is our historical move, right? Occupation. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, this is a repeat what takes place in Joshua almost verbatim, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Harris in the Mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill Gash. If you want to find his grave, they've given you the insight to get there. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And so I want us to get a picture of what's happening. Uh, we read that, and sometimes we start moving hundreds of years down the road, and that's not what's taking place. First, Joshua and his generation pass from the scene. As Joshua enters the land, he's already pretty old. As he works through these conquering, yes, he has many years there, but he's moving off the scene. They had seen the Lord work many miracles. They had seen the crossing of the Jordan. They had come out, some of them may have seen through the Red Sea. They had seen the conquest. They had seen him keep day longer. They've seen him send hail and knock down soldiers. They have seen God work. But soon after their passing, Israel refuses to see, to acknowledge God completely. They really should not have missed the consequences of that sin. How many of them would have witnessed the burial of their parents or grandparents in the wilderness at an alarming rate. I think one person did the math on it, and it came to 85 deaths if you spread it over 40 years, which we know it wouldn't have spread over 40 years. We know the deaths would have piled up towards the end way more. But if all the people that had to die in the wilderness died at an even rate, it would have been 85 burials every day for 40 years. In other words, they've seen the consequence of sin and they've seen it at an alarming rate. How many of them would have seen the punishment when Israel fell into moral sin with the Midianites? And I say that because I want us to understand something. Any ignorance would have been willful ignorance. It would have been a choice to not know. And then I want you to think a minute how quickly this takes place. 
And really, you have to understand it's barely a generation. And I want you to sink in. Just look around a second and just look at the next generation. Just take a peek. Now, as the current generation, take stock of your decisions and then ask yourself which way you're steering the ship. Because it happens, and we need to understand this when we walk into Judges, in barely a generation. Uh, The prior generation, Joshua's group, had been commanded to keep God in the forefront of life. Let's listen to the words of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. It says, Hear, O Israel, this is what Moses has written. It's on parchment. It's there for them to know. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And by the way, I won't go into a whole sermon on Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4 through 7, but if your Christianity is tucked into Sundays and Wednesdays or just Sundays, you've missed it completely because what Moses is writing is talk about God all the time in every situation, in every component of life, from your hobbies to your habits to your work to church and to your worship. It doesn't matter what it is. Talk about Him. That was the prior generation's call. They had a responsibility to make God known to acknowledge God in the everyday of life. And their priority was to make sure the next generation, their children, made God a priority in their lives. But I want to make sure we're not blaming the dead ones. The law was there also for the new generation to see. They had no excuse for not knowing. Moses is is dead and gone. He doesn't enter the promised land. He wrote the Pentateuch. So they had the law in writing. The ultimate weight rested with the new generation not knowing. And by the way, uh, Hebrew has a depth to their words that sometimes we can't capture in English. The idea of not knowing, we see as just not having information. But the word in Hebrew of not knowing has an added weight to it. It means not acknowledging. And it leans towards this. They didn't know because they didn't acknowledge the truth. And they didn't respond accordingly. So as Joshua and his generation leave the scene, immediately, and that word tells us, immediately the people of Israel, God's people, willfully neglect God. They choose to ignore him. And and the weight, I want you to feel the speed. It happens overnight, it seems. And that's supposed to be a wake-up call to us. It would be a wake-up call to Israel as they're reading Judges to understand what their nation has done. How easily we self-deceive, how quickly we obscure the truth, how quickly we refuse to acknowledge it. The little self-centered decisions of the current moment bearing gargantuan consequences in the hours that follow. And when you think of Israel's willful ignorance, this is what we need to think. Be aware of the danger lurking in those little moments that add up to disaster. Because, and this is critical, willful ignorance rarely is the end game. Being willfully unwilling to acknowledge God, to know God, and to see His truth is rarely where this ends. Leon Wood noted this. He says, the people knew better, for God had told them how to act. God's requirement had been laid down in the law at Sinai before Canaan was entered. They chose not to know, to ignore, 
And that willful ignorance became purposeful rejection. They moved from not acknowledging God to now doing evil against God. And it says it right in the next verses, 11 through 15. And the children of Israel did evil. They purposefully rejected God's law. They didn't acknowledge God's law, and now they're saying, let's do the opposite. Let's purposely reject it. They did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them. Now you understand the danger of not fully occupying, not following through with what God had said, and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger, just to keep the weight in here. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies." Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. This is what happens in Judges. This is now the opposite of what they could have had. This is the opposite of the blessing. Because Israel had made a wholesale swap of God for basically all of the gods in Canaan. They served Balaam. By the way, that's the plural for Baal. And I'm going to keep saying Baal. I, uh, if you want to know the right pronunciation is Baal, but it just drives me insane when I hear it. So I'm going to go with Baal because that's how we say it here in Virginia. Baal It's how it's supposed to be done. And I, I'm just hoping to take a class someday and just argue with the professor for, for 16 weeks about pronunciation and explain how the Dutch would do it, which is how I was raised. Well, the Dutch do it this way, which means it's right. That's what, that's what I was taught. Uh, that's the logic that's been ground into me. But Baal, and, and here's what's interesting. So you get this idea of why in the world do you have a god named Baal, and then why is it Balaam? Why is there multiple Baals, which there's not in theory multiple bales, but their religion was so barbaric, I want to say, that they didn't have the concept of a God that was all present, which is, is unique to me because our God is all present. He is the only true God, and that's one of the, the components that woves in, woven in. So in theory, there's one bale, but in, in practice, there is a bale for every region. So when you read Baal, Hermon, Baal, pure, Baal, whatever. That is the Baal that is worshiped in that region. And so what I want you to see is how small Baal was, but how wholeheartedly Israel dove in. And so they worshiped the Balaam. So wherever you were, you picked up the petty Baal worship that was in the area. So everywhere Baal was worshiped, he was given his own little identity and so he links to the one God, but he's the, he is the God of that region, and it's very local. In other words, wherever Israel landed, they served that local Baal. They had the God of the universe, the only true God, and they picked some local rendition of the fabrication of the people around them. They worshiped all the Canaanite gods. And sadly, as one author notes, Canaanite deities and idols appealed to the sensual passions of humanity. You see, the Canaanite gods 
centered around the agricultural economy. If you wanted it to be related to today, it would be related to your bank account. You would be worshiping the God of money, the God of your existence, the God of a big house, the God that makes you prosperous. So they're, they're God centered around an agricultural economy. Nature was in mind and Baal was the God of rain. And if you think about an arid region, if you look through the geography of the promised land, there are areas that get plenty of rain. There's areas that get barely any rain. Uh, You talk about arid farming and irrigation. All those things are necessary. So any God that was for rain would reign supreme. And I could dive into the Canaanite gods uh, more. Uh, Baal was the most powerful God. He ends up conquering the God of death and the God of storms and the God of the sea. He always ends up on top. But here's the basic truth we need to understand. Israel sold out the one true God for a lie at their first opportunity. Or maybe just the first sign of difficulty. Obviously, and we need to understand this, switching to Baal brings no real benefit to them, either temporal or eternal. There is only one God, and there's only one God that controls rain or weather. And so no matter what happened, what they did was fruitless But this act of idolatry prompted the wrath of God. And I put as a note, and I'll mention at the end, because even a hint of idolatry is complete idolatry. Because anything less than 100% worship of God is idolatry. You cannot bank on this world a little bit and be only a little bit idolatrous. You are completely idolatrous. You have failed in what God has demanded of you. No worries, though. Israel made sure there was no doubt about their idolatry because they engaged in it with seemingly wholesale commitment. But I want us to move from the general, the Balaam, into what we see specifically laid out uh, because their, their worship wasn't just a little bit and it wasn't in general. Uh, it got pretty specific. And that's what the text is telling us. They went after Baal and Ashtaroth, Baal that ruled the clouds and rain, And again, let's remind ourselves, rain was the critical component, but he was also the God of reproductive power. And and to keep it where we can understand but not be too detailed, there was a perverse relationship between Baal and Ashtoreth, who was the goddess of fertility, and that was thought to result in the productivity of the crops. They have now taken their economy, their whole life, they've connected it to a perversion to immorality, and the act of that immorality then creates the crops that are growing. As a historical note, this is helpful to understand because I want us to understand how perverse this religion is. Baal is the son of El, and that is the head deity. The head deity is known to have murdered another son and daughter. His wife was Asherah, who is the same one that consorts with Baal. And so I want you to understand how twisted this faith was, this religion, how perverse it was, because you're going to see now how it trickles down. Now you get to the goddesses, right? You're going to read the word Asherah. You're going to read the word Asheroth. You're going to read at times uh, the goddess Anath. And there's three of them. Asherah is the wife of El, the consort of Baal. Asheroth is the goddess of fertility, love, and war, the one that has just been listed that Israel has, has dove into worship. And Anath is the queen of heaven. But here's the thing that's interesting, and as I mentioned, the, the barbaric nature of the religion is that these three goddesses are very fluid in the mind of the Canaanites. And so they all 
flow and move around. And so every time you see a connection to one of them, you can basically understand that it's referring to all of them. And I want you to understand that when it came to worship, that this worship they were doing, when it says they did evil in the sight of God, it was evil because it got pretty perverse and twisted. Every amount of this worship, so this worship of agriculture, ends up with what is called temple prostitution. Uh, Though the worship of Baal doesn't take place at a temple, by temple prostitution, it means anywhere Baal is worshipped, they engaged in this wickedness. And so how do you worship Baal, the god of reproductive power and reign? By being immoral. You reenacted what took place between Baal and Asherah, or Baal and Asheroth. You you would reenact that in worship, and so they would have both male and female prostitutes at the worship centers, and all of society would come and engage in this. And I just want you to think with me a second to this point. When you come to worship like the Canaanites, any fidelity or any family purity was erased, eradicated, annihilated. And we are very easily duped if we don't miss, if we miss what Satan has done. Uh, If you go all the way back to Genesis and you start out and we're there in Sunday school, right? You saw the building of the family unit and you see this man leaves his family and is cleaving to his wife and they become one and then they build a family. What is the worship that is taking place in Canaan that the Israelites are diving into? It is the annihilation of that. There is no purity. There is no family. There is no fidelity. There's none of that. We've got the most convoluted mess you can think of, and the worship of that is to engage in a replication of their behavior. And that's as much detail as I want to give, but I want you to see the picture what takes place. As one writer notes, worship of them involved extreme brutality, just awful and immorality. Here we have a perverse and moral religion centered around agricultural success. The pull to false worship would pile on after the first mediocre harvest. My corn didn't grow, Canaanite says to the Israelite. Oh, you should worship Baal. It's a lot of fun. You do whatever you want. All these rules and regulation, gone. Dive into this. My corn didn't grow. Do you see how quickly that turns when you link to that? Not that worship of Baal would have turned anything around, And I hope you understand when we get to the story of Gideon, when he rips down the altar of Baal, why the people want to kill him. Because now he's ripped down what they would have gone to, to make sure corn grows, to make sure wheat grows, to make sure things go well. And it's the location of all their wickedness that would happen. And and so I was looking for a way to summarize this. And and, uh, Eugene Merrill writes this, uh, what is this worship? It was turning from Yahweh, the real source of prosperity and fertility, to the figment of depraved imaginations that confused the result of divine blessing with its cause. It was an egregious act of covenant rebellion and disloyalty best described as whoring after other gods, which is the expression we see in the next section. And you may wonder, and I think we should be shocked at Israel's spiritual decline. Why in the world get two introductions? Why see failure piled on failure? Why not just do this in one fell swoop? Because we need to feel the weight of what this decline looks like. They didn't take the action God had commanded, and now you look at their heart and you think, what 
is going on and we're supposed to be knocked back. But here's the second thing. We've got to be careful not to miss our own decline. This is given to us as a warning. It's, it's painted for us. And I put as a question mark to help us think, have we not drank freely from the social poison of this world? Too many people in church are guzzling down the wicked, perverse worship that this world has to offer. How many have woven the priorities of this current society into their life and practice? Heather was showing me something recently, and it was just awful. There was in a church, and I do use quotes here on purpose, because this place is no church that worships God. It's, it's of utmost wickedness. But apparently it takes place in these so-called churches. They were reciting a creed. And if you know about our world, there's a lot of creed and confessions of faith. This is a confession of some wickedness. It's called the Sparkle Creed. And I listened to it. It's a horrific document affirming all of the popular perversion of today. And they go on to ascribe it to God. And it takes place in what would be called a church. With their minister and the three people that were present. They then think a second, how has this world's idolatry permeated into our churches? Well, let's be more specific. How has it permeated into us? Because it's not just these blatant examples. I give the blatant example so you can see what the end result is. A disregard and embrace of this world's religion because it is their religion. I put as a challenge for us as we look at judges, and I hope we can make it applicable to our life. One challenge for us right now is to examine our own faith and belief and diligently see and eradicate the taint of this world's religion that is possibly running through it. We do live in an everyone right culture, and I want us to understand something. It is a purposeful rejection of God. Our culture is not pro-God. I'm going to be blunt I love our country, but it is not pro-God either. This, we're not looking to anyone outside of this, but instead we need to look at our own lives and we need to understand how have we allowed the thread or the, or the, or the current to get in? How have we sipped from the cup of poison that this world has to offer? Because if we miss that while reading what God has given us here about judges, then we've missed the whole point. God has put this in here for a reason. It's so that we would understand how quickly we deviate. We go from willful ignorance to purposeful rejection. Israel, of course, as God has promised, paid dearly and directly for their abandonment of the Lord. They immediately turned against God, and He immediately did what He said He would do. They fell into the hands of oppressors, and God made sure they lost the battles they went out to fight. You want to know why? Because they weren't winning any battles without Him. And so he just made sure, but he makes sure in scripture to say something. He doesn't just say, I stopped helping them. He says, I went and fought against them. In other words, you can't be neutral. There is no neutrality here. However, and this is so important for us to see because it's woven in their introduction. The one true God never disappears. He never walks away, but he can't. He's omnipresent. He cannot be gone from it. Whenever it said that God turns his back, obviously, but God can't disappear from the scene. He remains, as he promised, forever engaged with his people. And when a gracious and merciful God remains forever engaged, then we can correctly expect to see something, and that's merciful intervention. And that's what takes place. Judges is dark, and, and, it's, and we're going to see the darkness. We're going to see the rejection that goes 
happens in Israel over and over again, and they're cycling down, downward every time it gets worse. However, what we never lose is God mercifully interjecting into the life of his people. Because even though they're ridiculous, and think about how horrible they are, Joshua 2.16 says this, Nevertheless, the Lord. Nevertheless, even though they're horrible, wicked, and doing the worst, most vile things you can imagine, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. In other words, the Lord had pity on them because of what the people were doing to them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. In other words, in this introduction, when we see God's merciful intervention, we're seeing his mercy in spite of our wickedness, in spite of Israel's sin. Four verses we have painted for us the summary of the whole book. God in his mercy and grace raises up a deliverer, a judge. And the word for judge, Shaphat, it's, it's more than a judge. It's not someone who's sitting there saying, this is what I decide and this is what I decide. The judge was a deliverer. They would come in and rescue Israel and then they would rule. They would reign over them and rescues them from oppression and sets them on a corrected path. It's someone that God calls specifically and empowers specifically for the task. Sadly, though, they return in a worse way to the false gods of the land when that judge died. So Israel's progressive deterioration, each cycle going deeper into apostasy, and think about it, should have negated any help. There was no reason from Israel's perspective, from who they are, for God to be involved. And I want to remind us of those three words, nevertheless, the Lord, which when we're reading Judges, we cannot miss God's mercy and grace. We see his punishment. We see the fulfillment of his word. You see that he is going to be true to his word. But if you miss his mercy and grace, you've missed Judges. The fact is this, Israel existed only through God's mercy and grace. He's the one that had pity on them. When it says it repented the Lord, it means, it means the Lord was looking on them and had compassion on them. It's his intervention and his grace and mercy. Israel is not a nation. Israel is not in the promised land without God. We are never to presume upon God's mercy, but we can surely depend upon it. We don't say, well, God will be merciful to me. I'll, I'll, I'll manipulate God's mercy. I'll, I'll go to God. He has to do this. We don't presume upon it, but we can depend upon it. But what is the sad cycle that still unfolds? So here is God's mercy and grace in, encapsulated. And what is Israel going to do with it? Return to idolatry. Keep going back to sin and going deeper into it. Never learning or growing spiritually as a nation. And let me just put a caution to us. If you sit in your Christian faith and you're stagnated, Good luck. And I mean that in the most sarcastic way I can say it. Judges tells you what happens when you stagnate in your faith. There is no neutrality. You don't sit at a bland point and are safe. No, you will fall into a cycle of sin because you cannot stagnate. That's what Israel did. 
We see it every time. A leader is called by God who delivers. When he fades from the scene, Israel sides back and even further into paganism. And then here's the thing to think about. Is that the same cycle we see in our own lives? Have we consistently spurned God's mercy and grace? Have we demeaned his salvation? And then think a little bit analytically. And I use the word critically, but that's used a different way. So I like to use the word analytically. In other words, dive deep, look in there. What needs to change now if you're seeing that behavior? Don't sit there and walk out and say, well, you know, I'm kind of in a blah place spiritually. That's a dangerous place spiritually. That is at the cusp of a cycle of sin that's going to fall into. You don't have the right to be at a blah place spiritually. God hasn't given you permission to do that. There's no excuse that works to say, I have the right to do that. And so as you look in and and are analytical, as you dive in, as you examine your life, this is a warning. This is a, a, a broad thing. This is pay attention. It happens quick. It doesn't end with just the ignorance, and it moves on to this this horrific cycle that's taking place. What needs to change now if you're seeing that behavior? Israel refused to break the cycle. Sin was too appealing. The perverse paganism of the land seemed to draw them in constantly. And then instead of resisting, they embraced that temptation, which led to their painful reality, which is the close of this introduction. It says, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Chapter 2, verse 20. And he said, Because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. That through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, Neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. And I'm going to mention this, but don't miss the sovereignty of God there. Before they ever fell into sin, God knew what they were going to do. In other words, he did not give Joshua occupation because he knew that Israel would betray their trust in God. And so he's leaving the nations there, and, and we're going to come back to it, to make sure they're proven to punish them. It goes on, now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many as of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generation of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. And I'm going to talk about this, but I want you to not miss it. He's not interested in them learning how to use a sword. When he says that they'll know war, it's, and remind yourself of this, when Israel won, it's because God fought for them. When Israel loses, it's because God doesn't fight for them. In other words, knowing war meant knowing dependence on God. He left them there so they would depend upon him. Because if they had full occupation and full victory, their heart would have led to self-worship immediately. That they would have tracked in the wrong direction. Namely, he says, five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, that's a location of worship of Baal, unto the entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and the Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. God and his omniscience, all-knowing over all of time, leaves nations that will test Israel, nations that will teach them to depend on God. 
though this time was a great potential for the nation. This is what everything has been building to. From a human perspective, we're watching Israel enter the land. They have the opportunity to be the nation that shines out to the world. With all that potential, I want you to realize something. God was not surprised that they're not living up to that potential. It's not like God was like, well, plan B. I did not see that coming. No, he knew it was coming. And so we see all the way back into Joshua's conquest How things were different because of what would unfold there. God made sure that Israel or that Joshua did not get full conquest, nor did Israel succeed in having a quick occupation. Sadly, their affinity for sin set them up for a perpetual struggle with it. Their heart was turned to sin. Their heart wanted sin so much that they were destined now to fight it forever. Don't forget what the angel of the Lord said in Judges 2-3, and that's God, a theophany. Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before thee, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. And you go all the way back to what God said in the historical introduction as he closed down. And he says, they're going to be a constant pain to you, and you will be trapped by them. Their affinity for sin set them up for a perpetual struggle with it. God sent war and oppression to develop and test Israel, to purify them, to help them. The war and the oppression end up being mercy again, to drive them to the truth. They needed war to learn dependence on God because they will not succeed without God. And because this generation had chosen to ignore the spiritual lessons of their own history. We would be fools to not read Judges and not see the lessons that we have here. To not take the spiritual truth and apply it to our own lives. To look and say, can you believe Israel back then? Why would they do that? No, can you believe you right now? That's what God wants you to say. And they needed oppression to drive them to repent and keep God's law. God gave commandments that he expected to be obeyed, right? He gave commandments, not suggestions. God is not suggesting anything. God commands. He directs. He's not unsure of what is best. The proving pushed Israel to recognize who holds tomorrow and who holds the world in his hands. It pushed them to see God correctly so that they would hearken unto the commands of the Lord. If you read those nations, by the way, and you like a little history, none of them are world powers. They're surrounded by world powers. Egypt, Mitannia, Hatti, that's all around Canaan, and they run through Canaan back and forth fighting each other. None of them end up oppressing Israel. Who does God use? Small little nations around them to come in and oppress them, to remind them. Who did they leave? By the way, Egypt doesn't suddenly collapse as a, as a world power. They remain a world power after Israel leaves. God took them out of a world power and puts them in the promised land. And when they disobey, he gives these other little small nations a chance to beat up on them. Don't miss the irony of defeating and leaving the best, biggest nation and then being afflicted by little nothing nations in the land where you live. So herein, though, lies the question, because the painful reality that God has them walking through was to position them to walk in the way of the Lord. He was setting them up so that they would do what he had commanded because doing what God has commanded is the best that you can do. It's the best for you in this life. There's nothing better. 
What Israel said is, I'd like to find a different option. I'd like to follow what we've thought of ourselves. Don't we do the same? I have a better plan than God's plan. I have a better way to do this. So herein lies the question for us. Are we going to walk in the way of the Lord? Or are we going to persist in intermingling into the world around us and letting them influence us? Here is the close as I, as I wrap it up. We must see that Israel's spiritual integration was instigated by their cultural intermingling. And that's what the final verse 6 gives us. How in the world does this just collapse all in around them? How in the world does this false religion have such influence? Well, they didn't drive out the Canaanites like they were supposed to. They lived next door to them. And that first little bad harvest, or the first time you look and say, man, they're having a good time over there, all of that stuff pulls a temptation. As they intermingled culturally, as they embraced the world and what it offers, well, it just destroyed them spiritually. They took their daughters to be their wives. And then they took their own daughters, they gave their daughters to their sons. And what's the net result after you start mixing it all up and, 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 and polluting in that sense? Remember Egypt and all the years there with no intermarriage, with no integration of the culture, and now you're suddenly just grabbing their culture in spades. You're just consuming it. We're going to make sure we're all here connected and related. You serve their gods. They jumped right into the new society, the new culture with gusto, weaving it all into the fabric of their families. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes polluted worship. That's what happens. You marry this world, you grab a hold of this world, you bring them in in any shape, way, form that you have. You think, this is neat, we're all neighbors, right? We got to live with these people, we got to be around them. And so we will grab this world and we'll weave it into our family and think there's no consequence. There is. It's always polluted worship. And all it takes is just a little paganism. Just a little bit of today's culture for you to be an idol worshiper. How do you become idolatrous? Grab just a smidgen. Take a bite of this world. Just take a bite. You see, worship of God, and I said it earlier, demands 100% of your heart and nothing less. God unapologetically says, I want it all. What happens when you don't? Well, look at Israel. Spiritual nothingness is what happens. Instead of living up to their potential, and let me remind you what their potential was. Genesis 12, and you read through what God promised Abraham, is that they would be a light to the world. Now let me expand our vision the world, as in they would be a light to Egypt and to Mitanni and to Atia, and they would move on to Mesopotamia. They would be a light to the world of truth, of God, of the one true God, to shine a light of what it means. What do they end up doing? Oh, they're moved by the small worldly society directly next to them. They're supposed to be a light of the world. They end up influenced by just the most pagan, small sin nations right there. And then I put as our closing question, should we expect anything else from the church when we follow the same blueprint? Are we going to fulfill what God's called us to do to be a light in this world? We're called to be that. He's left us as ambassadors. We're to be the salt and light of this world. We're supposed to shine in the darkness. Are we going to do that if we follow the exact same blueprint that Israel followed? 
that we take the world that's around us and we just say, let's marry into it, let's integrate in, let's have just a little bit, let's participate in it. What will happen is that our light will not shine in the world. Instead, we will be darkness by just the social influence that sits around us. Should we expect anything else when we follow the same blueprint? Let's pray together. Hey, Father, thank for the opportunity we have to come and study your word. We know you gave us every word in your, in your Bible for a reason. That as we read through the story of Judges, you have not sugarcoated anything that the people you have called and chosen, who have been positioned with great potential at the cusp of, of being their own nation, of shining out in the world, we see their horrific failure. You don't hide that from us, but instead you give us that story, and we're going to walk through this journey with them. Because we're not supposed to respond in arrogance to what we see here, but instead we are supposed to be warned. We're supposed to be cautioned. We're supposed to be driven to be analytical, to be critical, to look at how we are deciding and how we are integrating and how we are allowing this world to influence us. We're to see what this type of integration does and not sugarcoat what we're doing, but instead making changes so that this world is not influencing us not so that we stand so strong, but instead we stand for you and that our life becomes a light as you have designed it to be. Give us the courage to be critical of our own life, to examine our faith, to see if there's some willful ignorance, if there's purposeful rejection, if there's an ignoring of your merciful intervention. Help us to understand the painful reality Help us to follow what you have called us to do, to recognize that your commands are just that. They are commands. To recognize that as we uh, may face this struggle, we see your mercy as you drive us to be your children, uh, to shine as lights in this world. Help us fulfill our potential. Help us be what you've called us to be. In your precious and holy name, amen.